This is the third lesson from the book of Micah, chapter 5. Marshal your troops now, city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel, Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. But you, Bethlehem, Ephathra, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd the flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord God, of the Lord is God. They will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be our peace when the Assyrians invade our land and march through our fortresses. He will raise against them seven shepherds, even eight commanders, who will rule the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod with drawn swords. He will deliver us from the Assyrians when they invade our land and march across our borders. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Jen, and great pronunciation on Ephathra. That was very good. You must have gone to seminary. That one takes practice. Well, Micah is a, what's considered a minor prophet. It's a prophetic book. And um, our term for prophecy is kind of taken on this idea formed by sort of the cottage industry of Christian publishing dealing with uh, prophecy and how you can kind of read the tea leaves of the Bible to figure out what's going on in our world and assign biblical value to all of these events. But prophecy, the term, doesn't necessarily mean, and it's not primarily oriented towards, the prediction of the future or foretelling events. Prophecy in the Bible is speaking God's name where He doesn't appear to be. It's inviting people calling people, particularly Israel, to repentance and to hope. But prophecy does involve time. Prophets do use time as sort of their medium, sort of their, their canvas, if you will, manipulating it and reordering it and subverting it. And at Advent, the traditional prophetic passages that we read during this season do just that. And it's like Marty McFly, if you will remember from Back to the Future, where he, he carries around this present-day photo of him and his siblings in the 1950s. And his actions in that time frame somehow affect events in the future or the present, depending upon your perspective and which way you look at it. And all of the time that he's in the 1950s, the, the picture is changing. His actions affect it. Well, Micah is referring to events that are all over the map in terms of time. He is reframing sort of his readers present by talking about events that are centuries into their future. And yet, 
that are rooted in very ancient realities. And as we read the prophetic books, as we read and listen to Micah this morning, we get to listen in on future events, future events for us from our time frame, and yet in a, in a very important way are yet still to come. And so in reading prophecy, we are kind of listening in a way that is going sort of back to the future, because we're reading in Micah about this king who's coming, this ruler who's coming, that has past and present and future dimensions. And so many of our stories work like this, especially as we think about kings. So many of our stories, literature and film, are about kings who are coming back to set things right. Think about Robin Hood and the return of King Richard. He's going to come back to set England right again. Lord of the Rings has the same kind of reality. Aragorn is the the rightful king, but he's hiding in plain sight as a ranger while Sauron is mounting his evil forces. And one day, that is the end of the trilogy, is called the return of the king, where he will finally uh, ascend to his rightful throne. And then, of course, we have King Arthur, captured in the title that T.H. Lawrence gives to it that is very prophetic relevant or prophecy relevant, the once and future king. Now, the problem that Micah identifies early in this passage is that we conflate the idea of this, the coming of this great king rooted in the past, that he will come and he will enshrine our ideas, that he will give legitimacy to our perspectives, that our tribe's dominance will get a, a new lease on life when this king comes. That we believe that this future king could do little better than put us in charge and to ask us about our opinion, opinions and make sure they proliferate around our culture. And so first, what Micah does is he gives us a little bit of bad news or bad tidings would be more seasonally appropriate here. He says in verse 1, marshal your troops. Marshal your troops now for a siege is laid against us, and they will strike Israel's ruler, his present ruler, on the cheek with a rod. He's telling Israel's leaders who are in the context, if you read throughout Micah and the prophetic books, are these sort of misguided theocrats who self-fictionalize their own righteousness while at the same time neglecting the needs of the poor. And the prophets continually hold those two things up and say, this doesn't match. This is entirely wrong. You are taking God's name in vain. And so now God is on the move against you. Marshal your troops if you like, but it won't matter because God's righteousness is very different from yours. And if you claim to live under God's righteous reign and yet neglect His values, then that is the very definition of hypocrisy, and God will move against the religious leaders that lead Israel in that way. They will be, in fact, in the near future, overrun 
by successive foreign entities, Assyria, Babylon, Persia. That's how seriously God takes this. But God doesn't fully abandon Israel, his people, or Israel as a concept, as an idea. He, in fact, has a plan to return Israel to its original conception. He has a plan to redeem them. Not only verse 1 that we read this very threatening kind of tone, marshal your troops if you want, but it won't make any difference. To verse 2, one who is to be ruler in Israel, who's coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Then they shall, what? Dwell secure. They shall have peace. So there's sort of this warfare element in verse 1. That is warfare against the religious zealots who have taken over Israel. Now to a coming of peace. In one way, this peace will be born, coming in the future from Bethlehem. But in another way, he's a king who's always been, who's taking the throne because it's his to begin with. And just as tiny Bethlehem had once produced the greatest national king that Israel had ever known, that is David, so another king would come from this very improbable place. But you, verse 2, Bethlehem Ephrathah, and that Ephrathah is sort of like a last name. It's like Springfield in the modern day. There's a Springfield in every state. There are many Bethlehems, and so you had to identify them as you wrote about them. Though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come from me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. From you, Bethlehem, will come not just a ruler, but will come the ruler. And he shall be, verse 4, he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. In the midst of the swarming disorder of the way that we do the holiday season, as well as the inner chaos that it both recognizes and enhances in our own lives, Micah tells us of this great ruler who is coming to bring peace. And then the Gospels take up this idea, and in very simple, very quiet prose, they tell us about this child from Bethlehem, whom they claim is this ruler, is the ruler. And it, he's a ruler with a very strange, improbable backstory, with nothing that the religious zealots, nothing that the party officials could hype. It's a child. This ruler comes as a child, born in a very ordinary backwater town, in a very insignificant region of Palestine, born to a very undistinguished people. And yet he is the rightful king. And so this very smelly, small stable in the middle of nowhere becomes the center of everything, cosmically, 
the birth of Jesus incarnates into the present. You see, these very ancient promises that God has given us that none of us are left alone to simply live out our years into the future, and in the present to simply try to find diversion that helps, helps us forget of our mortality and all of the dreams that are still unfulfilled in our lives, or maybe just to search continuously each and every year for some kind of transcendence in the nostalgia of the holiday season. But instead, these ancient promises tell us that at the center of the universe, there is a fountain of immeasurable love and compassion upon a creation that has gone astray, that evil has entered into. That at the center of the universe, these ancient promises are rooted in a person, in a merciful God who longs to bring peace to our chaotic lives, to our disordered holiday season, and who longs finally to grant stillness to our souls, a genuine and lasting silent night, a heavenly peace, a peace that can only come from heaven, that it cannot be self-generated. Well, Advent friends, then is therefore not simply a season of reflection upon past events, no matter how magnificent they are and are told in the Gospels. It's not simply reflecting upon them and remembering them and calling them to mind. It's not just about the past, but Advent is about a present season of quiet hope that is leaning into a future, believing that, you see, the waiting of our ancestors in Micah's day was justified, that the waiting of the shepherds in Jesus' day wasn't just this wistful fiction that we now have nostalgic feelings about, but that in the birth of this child in this insignificant place that God truly inaugurated His kingdom. And it's a kingdom of peace. It's a kingdom of rest. And here's the hope, because though the forces of evil in our world marshal their troops, though the forces of resistance in our own disordered and busy hearts marshal their troops, God's peace, you see, inserts itself on an unexpecting, sometimes unwilling creation. And that's how He begins to move in our hearts. He inserted Himself in the past. He continues to insert Himself in our Advent present. And those ancient promises are proclaiming that He will insert Himself once again in our future. And therefore, there is reason to hope. Because you see, Micah throughout and the prophets throughout talk about this final proliferation, proliferation of peace, of stillness. He envisions swords being beaten into plowshares. He envisions nations that are now at peace 
with one another because God has, has inserted Himself not just into our individual souls, but into our cosmic reality, into our physical world. And he envisions this idea of God abiding by his old promises and bringing mercy finally in full. And if you keep reading the next couple of chapters in Micah, they, it comes to this astounding ending. Let me just read verse 18 in chapter 7. Who is a God like you? Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. We use this passage often in our confession time. A God from whom we don't have to wrestle love and mercy, but who delights to give it. You will, you see, future language, you will again have compassion upon us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all of our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You will be faithful to Jacob and show love to Abraham as you pledged to our ancestors in the days long ago. In Advent, what we do is we do recognize and we celebrate the past, but in a way that invades our future and sort of infects the way that we await, and sorry, infects itself into our present in a way that causes us to await the future in a different way. That if this king was born in Bethlehem and he was the Messiah, Jesus, then there is a time where those same promises that are attached to him have future dimensions that tell us that he will come and, and complete his reclamation promise, project, that he will finalize his promises of redemption, of full and eternal peace, not just in our turbulent lives, but you see in the world at large. And Advent is a season. It's a, it's a discipline of listening. It's a discipline of pausing enough to work with time in a way that God's promises subvert our space-time continuum, that it subverts the way that we normally go about our lives in a linear fashion. Advent is the discipline of listening, of pausing, of being still long enough to notice and long enough where we have the space to ask, what would that peace, were it to come, what would it attach itself to in my life? What would it attach itself to in my family's life, in my church's life, in all of my relationships? In other words, where is there disorder and chaos that God's peace would long to be attached to? Asking that specifically and practically. And where would God delight to show me mercy during this season? If He longs to show us mercy, then why not ask? If He longs to show us mercy, then why not say, God, where in my life do I need it that I may not even recognize? 
beyond the places that are so very obvious to us? Where might He again over the next five weeks love to have compassion on us? And how might that change life for me now, for us now, in this present, and in the way that we move into the following year with a a differently shaped future? Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would more and more begin to formulate on the basis of the promises that You've given us this differently shaped future, that we would not live our lives in merely a linear fashion, just riding out the remaining days that we have on this earth, but that we would invest those days because of You and what You have done in Your Son, Jesus, with hope and with meaning and with purpose and with the belief that tomorrow can be different from the last. It can be more full of grace and more full of compassion and more full of mercy, and not only for ourselves, but that we can be a reservoir that's overflowing for others, that this church can be that, that our individual lives can be that because of the promises that are laid upon your son Jesus that was born in that tiny town so many years ago. Let it be real to us again this season. We pray in his name. Amen.